0: Lord, you're good, and just sometimes to sit in the stillness and the quiet and to gaze upon you and your beauty is the most deserving thing we can give you, so thank you for this chance, just to be, for a very brief time, just to be still and quiet before you. We pray in your name, Jesus, the beautiful one, amen. Yes, you may be seated. Morning, everybody, how are you? I am here in a fog this morning, uh, if you don't know what that means. For, so first of all, Russ at a bowcher in the house. Come on up, guys. Come on up. Can you welcome them as they come up? <laughs> and I think we have a photo for you. Nope. No photo. I'll show you next week. I was going to show you a picture. The reason I'm in a fog is yesterday Ariel got married to Josue. You guys were there. That was uh, quite a deal. Uh, if For those of you that have been married, the tiredest day of your life was the day you got married, right? All that stuff leading up to it, and by the time the night came, you're so exhausted. I told him I was so exhausted. I needed to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. I had never been that tired. <laughs> I now know the second tiredest day of your life is the day a daughter gets married. So, thankfully, uh, we had the foresight to ask Jordan to, uh, to preach this morning. And before I ask you a few questions, um, just want to remind anybody here who's a college student, last year we met last spring with some of the college students and we're hearing their heart and things they were longing for and ways they wanted to be a part of the body better and just things that, just to be, just things we could do that would help them. And it was there was a pretty clear consensus in the group that they were wanting to have a, a class, a time they could meet together. So in two weeks, if you're here with ESU, we're starting. It's gonna be at 9.15, so it's gonna be during this time, and it's gonna meet upstairs. That The room eight over there is actually, it says eight, but it's stairs that go up and there's a room up there. And that's where the group's gonna meet. And I know it sounds really early. I mean, there's a pretty good group of you guys here right now. Um, as we talked to them, they were all like, a lot of the college students actually show up at 1030 and they, did, they said we don't wanna be up there and then like 10 college students come in and are like are there any college students that are here or is this just a bunch of old folks like look at all these old people out here. <laughs> um, yeah like me, you know, is it just a bunch of people like him, they don't wanna be around people like me. So, um, so they're like hey strategically let's do the class at 915 and we can all be down there at 1030 so they can have a better sense that there actually are more students. So, just want to let you guys know, and we're also going to have a lunch that day afterwards that'll be in here. So, okay. But you guys are the, the stars of the show right now, so. Russ and Ed about. Hey, so first of all, probably if people haven't been here a long time, they don't know your connection. You guys go back a long ways with 12th. Tell us, not your whole history, but <laughs> your, <laughs> like, what is your connection to 12th?
1: Um, well, we moved here in 1983 telling how old we are, I guess. Uh, we came here, Russ got a job as a plant engineer at Bungie, the soybean processing plant on the east, eastern part of town. And I did a couple things, worked with big brothers, big sisters as a case manager and stuff. So we just really plugged into the church here, um, working with the youth and the missions team, and I really had a heart for missions that developed during college, and this church did not let that die. continued to feed that little bug that kept growing and growing, and I was actually through a missions conference at this church that we felt like God was saying it was time to take steps to go. Okay. So,
0: yeah, so he was tapping you on the shoulder and asking you to be a part of what he was doing among the nations. So, what did you guys, what was your next step? What'd you end up doing? Where'd you end up going?
2: Uh Yeah, so, um, We knew we needed to get some kind of training and so we uh, went to South, South Carolina and went to Columbia International University and had a tremendous time of learning and, and just getting deeper in uh, what God's doing worldwide and, and uh, getting some skills um, and yeah, yeah, ministry um, cross-culturally was our main focus. So.
1: And then after that, we came back here for a time. Russ was an interim youth pastor here, and uh, we were raising our support to go. And then in January of 96, we packed up our three little girls and went to the Philippines. We had never been there before. Yeah. (laughs) And we were there for 22 years. And then last year, it seemed evident God was kind of preparing us for a new season, partly because of a medical journey that Russ has been on. Uh, but we've accepted new positions at our home office of our mission in Colorado Springs. so.
0: Yeah, and so before we get to what you're doing there, Russ, when you were in the Philippines, I'm just going to give you my understanding, and then you can totally correct all the ways I'm wrong. But you sent, your thing is you were, you were helping to identify, in, like in a region, where are there churches and where are there not churches? And then you would go to that region and present the information to pastors and challenge them to plant churches in those regions. Is that Would that be yeah, a fair that, summary?
2: That's a pretty good summary of that. Yeah, um, add
0: a little more to that.
2: Well, one of the things we did was, um, it was as uh, different groups were trying to figure out how to approach uh, a, you know, have a great impact on the Philippines. We felt like we needed to go out and find out who was where and what you know what were different churches of different denominations? What were they doing? Um, and so we we sent out a uh, a bunch of folks, and they just walked streets and uh, up and down, trying to discover if there's a little house church here, if there's a big church here, mapping that all out so that uh, there was an idea of what what kind of uh, a force or, or Group, Or we're going to need to have in order to get a clear picture of what was going on in a given area and So we we did probably three-fourths of the entire country doing this kind of thing very very thorough And so we have a pretty good picture of Again two-thirds three-quarters of the country we we have an idea on where we need to go So it's it's been much more um, uh, more strategic, in the fact that we're not just meandering around, but we know where we need to go, and we know what um, what needs to happen. And the, the really the great and the really wonderful time that happens at the end of all of this is we we invite all the pastors that we went out and talked to, and said, please show up on you know a month from now on at this certain place, and uh, let's let's talk about this together. And so there were a lot of a lot of pastors coming to these events, and they were they were not all from the same denomination. There were very uh, many different denominations there, and that was a tremendous um, something you don't see a whole lot of. I guess uh, where groups from you know instead of being territorial, they were all saying, "Hey, we're, this is where the place where God wants all of us. Let's see what we can do together, and as we join together." And, yeah, those were, those were fascinating, interesting times when you, you would talk about this pastor's. If he's got 13 people in his church, and this pastor who's, a, a, uh, leads a you know church of 500, and they're all mingling together. So it's, it's been very interesting and very exciting to see what God has done. Yeah.
0: So very kingdom focused. Yes. Yeah. And
1: they adopted areas that needed churches. So they would. a lot of churches were planted as a result of these efforts yeah. in those areas that needed them. So it was a very cool thing to be a part of.
0: Do you have a sense in those 22 years? I know you probably didn't keep the exact count, but how many churches would you guess were started because of the, that effort? Mm-hmm.
1: Last year we um, got some of the numbers together because I know over 4,000 barangays, which is like a district, were adopted for church planting during that time. And then um, I think we've documented 400 and some churches that we know have been planted, partly because we have a guy, we send somebody from our team back every month for a year after that to um, encourage and network and bring the church planters together who are trying to do that. So that's very cool.
0: That is very cool. 400 churches planted that we know of. For the sake of the kingdom and people knowing Jesus in the Philippines. Can we, like, let God know that's really, that's awesome
2: work? Yeah. Just the just to, I'm sorry, I'm a numbers guy. Um, There was uh, 400 churches in the last year or so. There's been about 4,000 in, in, uh, over that, what is it, 15-year period, 20-year period. Mm -hmm. So.
0: Yeah, so about, wow, 4,000. Can we do that? God, like, whoa, that's even 10 times more. That's great. So what's the new thing now? If you were to tell us, Etta, what's your position you have?
1: So my new position is called the director of pre-field ministries, and I'm walking with our newest missionaries from the time they are accepted in the mission to the time they leave for the field. So I am directing several trainings that are required for them. I have one coming up the day after Labor Day for four days, so getting ready for that. And um, also just uh, trying to keep in contact with these appointees every month for the year or two years that they're raising support and trying to handle a gajillion details. So um, it's been very fun working with some younger couples. It kind of reminds me of us once upon a time many moons ago. and so that's pretty exciting, the places they're going and getting them ready to go there. Uh, there's also been a few surprises, a few challenges along the way. Um, I feel like there's quite a business side to it that it shouldn't have surprised me, but it did a little bit. I mean, I spent a lot of time answering emails and connecting people and looking at money and looking at budgets and communicating with the field and, you know, all insurance, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, so, but it's been pretty exciting. We've sent out one couple since I started to a large country in Southeast Asia that shall remain unnamed. (laughs) Christianity is definitely the minority in that place, so
2: anyway, Russ's job. Yeah, um, I actually am doing, though though we've moved back uh, to the States, I'm still really kind of doing what I did in the Philippines, which is, again, to go out and this whole Whole this whole thing that we just described in pulling pastors together. And, uh, you know, email and all of that makes it possible for us to, for me, to be on one side of the world and working with my team, you know, every, every week uh, on the other side of the world. So
0: um, Favorite part of the wedding yesterday, you guys were there, uh-huh. just totally random. Well, how about this? Who looked better, the groom or the, the father of the bride? I just want to know <laughs> who had the nicer.
1: Definitely the bride.
0: <laughs> Good answer. That's what I was looking for. So, uh, no, just what are some things we can pray for you guys in this season of your life, the transition and all?
1: Yeah. Um,. We've been, as I mentioned, on quite a medical journey with Russ. We shared a bit about that at the missions conference this last year. And that journey continues. Uh, We've started a new kind of protocol with a doctor that's really a whole body, whole health kind of thing. Um, Some testing that they did. Uh, One doctor is convinced that there's some Lyme disease infection. So we've got some new things to consider, some new things to look at there. Um, So we appreciate your prayers for that ongoing journey. Some of you have been praying for my mom. We moved her to Colorado Springs with us. She's in assisted living. And since the time we moved there, we discovered she had a tumor on her hip that was from bone marrow cancer. Um, She evidently didn't have cancer anywhere else. So they treated that tumor with radiation, pretty convinced they got it. She had another gastro procedure done, a scope where they opened up her esophagus. So she's 90, kind of feeling like she has a new lease on life. Um, But appreciate your prayers for her. We've just had a lot of emotional, um, some kind of intense emotional time since we've been back, partly dealing with this, all the transition of leaving the Philippines. Um, We just went back this summer for three weeks to close it all up, uh, say our goodbyes. Our three daughters were there with us and kind of try to bring closure to that, um, that time. One of my friends wrote me a note and said, I'm praying that this will feel like a a finished chapter of a very good book. It's closed, but it's finished and it was good. Mm. And so that's been a helpful picture for me. Um, Some of you know that my sister, our sister, um, uh, lost her husband in May. Uh, She came home one day from a workout and he was unresponsive on the bathroom floor. Um, He was 63, so again, there's just been a lot of emotional turmoil (laughs) in our family. Um, We received our shipment on Friday from the Philippines with some of our household stuff. So for the first time in 30-some years, I think we're going to have all of our stuff in one place. Uh, And I feel like we're kind of, as that happens, starting to settle in to our new lives and our new jobs and, you know, new relationships and stuff. So we just appreciate your prayers. We continue to do that and, and bloom where we're planted in the new place where we are. There's certainly some challenges. There's a lot of joys. Um, and things to look forward to.
0: Yeah. It's been a theme the last two missionaries I've chatted with up here, the couples. So you're just normal humans who go through normal stuff ups and downs, losses, transitions, changes, grief. I mean, all that, right? Nothing.
1: I might just mention, too, uh, because some of you have prayed for my brother Darwin. He's here today in the wheelchair back there and his son Caleb. Um, he, uh, a lot of people call him Doc because. He has taken care of a lot of ranchers' cattle in southeast Kansas and Oklahoma, but has had an aneurysm and three strokes in the last two years. Uh, so he also has been through a lot of transition and is in assisted living in El Dorado now. But he was here for the beef fest. A lot of it got canceled yesterday. But
0: anyway. Because of the <laughs> so wedding, I think. Is that right? Was, <laughs> yeah. There was a big wedding going on in town, so they had to cancel all events in Emporia. Yeah. For... <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, Okay, I want to pray for you guys, but I do want to say, I mean, we've had um, three, three of the missionaries we support that have been here this summer, we've been able to talk to, two of them, like, came from this church. They were called to the nations from this body, and God is still a God who is on mission to reach the nations, and that is still His heart, and so we all want to be open because you never know when God may want to tap you on the shoulder unexpectedly and ask you to be involved in some way. And just a reminder, the, the faith promise we do every year, and if you haven't been, if you've been new in the last six months or even the last year or so, um, we'll be doing that in October, but that, that money that we promise to give towards God's work among the nations is so important because that's how you guys are funded, right? Mm-hmm. You just don't get a paycheck. Trees, you don't have trees in the Philippines growing in dollars, right? It comes from churches and individuals that support you. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so you can do that. So your giving to missions is so important. So. Can we pray for these guys? And then Jordan, we're gonna let you uh, let you come up. Father, I pray for Rosaneta. Love these guys dearly. Long for their flourishing, their wholeness in life, in ministry, in work a lot of transition going on, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of loss, a lot of pain, a lot of new things, a lot of excitement, a lot of things that are just unknown, and we know that you are the one constant. Pray that they would hang on to you. You would surround them with people that encourage them and help them to hang on to you, and that you would continue to use them in your work among the nations in this new chapter of their life, and we're excited to see what you will continue to do. We love them dearly, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, who has this great heart for the nations and who died to bring the nations to himself. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Could we give them some?
3: All right. Hey, guys. Um, I'm like the closer. I'm like out of the bullpen now. i got to close this thing out, so... <clears throat> I don't play for the Royals, so it'll be okay, it'll work out, it'll be good. Um, oh, wrong room for that joke. <clears throat> um, so if you don't know me, I'm Jordan, I'm the student pastor, I get to teach whenever one of Garen's daughters get married, and um, I just really love teaching, and the bar for teaching is so high at this church. I mean, like last week, Garen's message was so good, and I was really like excited that you guys got to hear it, but at the same time, I'm like, dang it, I gotta follow that. So, like, sometimes I get a little bit intimidated or nervous about preparing, and I just think it has to be so good, and I feel like God has just told me, like, yes, do your work, prepare, do the best you can, but it is so not about your words, like, it is so about what God is going to communicate through this, so I'm going to make that the focus in my heart today, and so I hope that's what we can kind of focus on as a group, too, so can I just pray before we get started, and we'll be off and running here. Lord, we love you, I love you, I thank you so much for this opportunity, I thank you that you are here with us right now, and that you care um, about the nations, like we heard with the bowels, and so, we just lift them up, God, and and what we're going to talk about here today, just having faith that lasts, especially in our young people, God, that is so close to your heart as well, Um, you want longevity in us, God, you don't want us to just burn out, so, just pray for your spirit to be with us, with me, as I just communicate your words here, in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so yes, um, we're talking about a faith built on revival, a faith that's going to last. And the reason we're doing this is because it's school year time. The kids have gone back, teachers have gone back. Um, Everyone's kind of gearing up for fall programs, and so we want to talk about in our young people how do we create a faith that that lasts, a faith that's not going to burn out? Because the stats are are absolutely not on our side, and I have to start with some disheartening stats. So, sixty six percent of what we would call church teenagers step away from the church for at least a year between the age of 18 and 22. And that's according to a 2017 study by Lifeway. So we're seeing young people stepping out of church as they get older. Um, And 47% of those students say that a main factor of that was the change in scenery. So the fact that they had to leave their home church and go to another one was a big reason. They just didn't go back for quite a while. And church attendance, it's not the measuring stick For holiness, right, that's not really what we're concerned with here, but it's also really hard to follow Jesus when you're not in church. So more than their actual church attendance, we're really worried about um, these students uh, walking with Jesus, having a relationship that they own with Jesus after they leave the church, and that's kind of the goal of what we're after here. Um, So that's what we're asking ourselves is, how do we prepare our young people to thrive spiritually in a new or even a hostile environment once they leave home? Because that's the question. We can kind of keep them in our nest for a while, but everyone's got to leave at some point. And how do we ensure that they follow Jesus on their terms um, in a way that honors God after they leave? So that's the, that's the big question. And, um, you know, I hear this question a lot. This question keeps me awake at night sometimes. And I think about it. And parents ask me this all the time. Jordan, what do we do? How can we keep our kids in church after they leave? And I've got, a, I've got somebody that I always talk to about this stuff. Um... And so, if you guys, if you guys don't mind, I just this guy he knows a lot, and so I just generally call him when I don't know what's going on. So if I could just, um, just. It's uh, <laughs> not answering. He probably, hey, uh, y- you weren't supposed to answer. That wasn't part of the skit. <laughs> 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 That's what we get for no rehearsal. Okay, great. Well, Garen did answer, but we're still going to go to God's word because it's got good stuff too. So, (laughs) Great. Okay, we're going to start in God's word on this. Um, So we're going to start in in the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bible, open up to Daniel. We're going to go to Daniel 1. And this is a story that many of us have heard, but I just listened to a podcast recently that kind of gave me new, fresh eyes To see this in a whole new way. And it was so exciting. And so that's what I want to share with you and and start by sharing today. So, Daniel 1, we're going to start with verses 1 through 6. This is going to kind of set the scene for what we're going to talk about today. So, whenever you're there, I'll have it up here too. So, Daniel 1, 1 through 6. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it and the lord delivered jehoiakim king of judah into his hand along with some of the articles of the temple of god these he carried off to the temple of his god in babylonia and put in the treasure house of his god then the king ordered ashpenaz chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the israelites from the royal family and the nobility young men without any physical defect handsome showing aptitude for this story, and many of us have read it, some of us haven't, but these, these four Hebrew boys, these young men, they couldn't have been more than, you know, they're somewhere in the range of 11 to 21 years old. They're not very old at all. They're still very much in their formative years. And they get snatched up out of their society, and they're taken into exile into another place that does not share their morals, their, their belief in God, their customs, their values. And so they are totally cut off from everything. So here's the question we're going to look at. What will happen to the faith of these young men when it's put to the test, when they are totally taken out of their context and put into a new one? And in this case, it is um, exile. So let's look at three instances where they really crush it. They, they put um, God's, their devotion to God on display in a really mighty way. The first one happens right after this in Daniel 1.8. The king, it's said in there, Um, wanted all these guys to eat the same food but these foods they broke God's laws on what they could eat and so these four guys they say hey could we eat what our God tells us to eat and long story short it ends up that he allows them to do that and they actually perform better than everybody else but that's got to be a really nerve-wracking thing when thousands of people are eating one thing and they don't even like you or your God and you're going to ask them to do something else that I mean that wasn't easy so Situation one, they are faithful to God. Next situation, in Daniel 2, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream that he cannot understand. He asks everyone in his kingdom, can you interpret this? His wise men, his sorcerers, everybody, nobody can. They call on Daniel, he comes, and if he gets it wrong, he's in a lot of trouble, but he nails it. And so he is faithful to say, I'm going to trust God to do this as well. And so situation number two, he absolutely crushes it. His devotion to God is put to the test and it, it proves real and true and faithful. And so uh, God is made famous again. So then the third one, this is maybe the most famous one. Um, there's a really great veggie Tales dedicated to this one. Um, but Daniel and his friends, they're, they're forced to bow down and worship this God that is it's fake. It's a statue. And so they say, no, we're not going to do it. And they threaten to throw them into this fiery furnace. And they say, okay, heat it up. That's okay. It's fine. In fact... That's what they do. They get thrown into this furnace, and the furnace is so hot that the guards holding these guys, when they threw them in, as soon as they open the doors, they disintegrate. They burn up, and these boys go in, and they get thrown in, but they live. And so at that point, Nebuchadnezzar brings them out and says, these guys serve the true God. And so three times, their faith is put to the test, and they stick to their guns. They don't bend on what they believe. They do not exchange truth for something else. Um, and God has made famous for it. But my big question is, how does this happen, right? Because this is not normal. This is not normal for these boys to be able to stand up to this in this way. What created such a strong faith in these young men particularly? How did teenagers, after taking into exile and having studied literature, language, culture of the Babylonians for four years, right? You guys, some of you are worried about sending your students to public high school. These guys went to Babylon High for four years, the most secular, godless place, absorbed all their knowledge and still remained faithful to God. How in the world did they they do that? And how do we replicate that in our young people? Because that is what we need here today. I mean, you talk about a coercive environment. Once again, these guys, or without their families, their support systems, their customs, their culture, I mean, they are on an island. They are culturally conquered. There is nothing around them that reminds them of home or God or what they used to follow. And they still are so faithful. So what happened to these guys? How did they do it? How were they able to be so faithful? Um, And I think it's really interesting, the challenges they face over 2,600 years ago are the same as we we are, our young people are facing today. I mean, just look at this and tell me if this sounds familiar, right? Pressure to reject God for something more current and culturally acceptable. Does that ever happen in 2019? Pressure to exchange truth for something more experiential. That, that sticks. Pressure to worship something physical and tangible instead of a God that cannot be seen with human eyes. I mean, the things these guys faced are the same things our kids are going up against and they absolutely crushed it. So we need to find the answer. How did they overcome all this and still stay firm? To find the answer, we're not gonna call Garen, even though he will answer, we now know. Um, We're gonna go back further into the Old Testament. So the answer is in Second Kings 22, so turn there if you, if you want. But before we even get there, we need to give a little backstory on the nation of Israel, okay? You need to know a little bit about who they are before we can really get into this. So when God brought about the nation of Israel, he appointed these people called judges to oversee them, okay? So they were basically the go-between for the people and God. They, they told them what God's laws were and how to stay right with him, and it worked for a while. Um, But pretty soon, the Israelites, they looked around and they saw that every other nation had a king on a throne and a crown and a sword. And they said, yes, we need a king. So they came to God and said, God, we need a king. And he said, I am your king. And they said, no, we want a real king. We want a human person king, not you. And God says, that's a really bad idea. And they say, we don't care. And he says, okay. And so they decide that Saul, this really good-looking, strapping guy, big and strong, is going to be their first king. And so they decide to let Saul be king And this kicks off a really long line of kings in Israel. Some are good and some are bad. And at one point, Israel even splits into two kingdoms because things happen. We don't have time to get into. And um, so it's now Israel and Judah. And Judah is this southern kingdom. And we're talking about these kings. And the worst king that Israel, or Judah, I guess we should say, ever had was a king named Manasseh. And he was from Judah. He was from the southern kingdom. And this guy Manasseh was the absolute worst. Okay? He was the most evil king in the Israelites' history, um, he totally rejected God. He totally um, desecrated the temple by bringing idols and prostitution into it. He mixed the Israelites with other pagan people around, and so they were no longer. Their bloodlines were not pure anymore. Like he just did everything that God told him not to do. Okay. In fact, the worst thing he ever did—he actually sacrificed two of his sons on an altar to a false god named Molech at one point. I mean, it was just so. This is the king of Israel doing these things. So he has gone so far um, off the deep end. He's not following God anymore. So this sets Judah on a terrible path. They are no longer following God. They They are so far from him. And for the next 60 years, they are off track because of this, right? Because they have lost God's law. They are no longer following him. But this is where the story gets good. This is where we pick it up. This is where it starts to really matter. King Josiah enters, okay? Um... In the first verse of chapter 22, we learn about Manasseh's grandson. His name is Josiah, and he becomes king at age eight of Judah because his father is killed in battle. So age eight, he takes over on the throne, and I used to read this story and be like, an eight-year-old king, that would never work. But then I had kids, and I found out kids actually love being the boss of things, so it probably would have worked out really well. Um, Maggie, we have so I have Maggie who is, she turns four Friday, so she's almost four, and then Jed is one, and... There's so many times in my life where I'm like, you just think you're in charge of everything. That's incredible. And so I I have to tell a quick Maggie story that demonstrates this. But before Mags, this is Jet. He's one. And he fits well in a suitcase. Probably. I don't know. I've never tried it. Um, But that's Jetty. And then he has a fever today, so he's not here. But Maggie, this is Maggie. This is not the most beautiful picture of Maggie. But it is the most accurate to who she is. Just kind of a weirdo. Um, So this is Maggie. She's going to be four. And she thinks she runs things. I just have to tell this quick story because this opened my eyes to the fact that young people think they're in charge of everything. So a few nights ago, she was coughing. She was coughing, coughing, coughing. It's 2 a.m. I'm in bed. I get up. I give her some water. Um, she stops coughing for a bit. I go back to bed. She coughs again. I give her medicine. She's still coughing. I go back to bed. She's coughing. I get up again. And so the third time now, I can tell she's just got some junk in her throat. That's all it really is. Like if she would just clear her throat, she would be fine. We could all sleep. So she's just laying there, and I go in on and I say, Mags, you need to clear your throat. You got some junk in there, just clear your throat. And she just ignores me and she just lays like this. She like looks at me with one eye. And I'm like, Mags, can you clear your throat? And I'm showing her, like, does a three-year-old know how to clear the throat? I don't know. So I'm showing her, like, uh, uh, uh. like, uh, just do this uh, for like 20 seconds. I'm like, Mags, uh, with me, come on, uh. And she just sits there. And she was, like, staring at me, and then she just closes her eyes, and she goes, Dad, I'll do it if I feel like it. Just go to bed. <laughs> and I said, Jordan, we can't go back to jail, okay? Just walk out of the room. No, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's actually really funny when your kids say stuff like that, but you can't laugh because it encourages them. And so that's the hardest part of parenting as far is not laughing when your kids are really funny and you have to discipline them. So... So anyways, bunny trail. I'm so sorry. Back to King Josiah. So he is eight when he takes the throne. Eighteen years later, he is still following God. And he decides he wants to renovate the temple. Okay? He wants to restore it to its former glory. And so they're going through the temple. They're cleaning out closets. They are getting rid of all these old things they've never used before. And uh, the high priest is cleaning out one of these back closets. And he finds something that was lost so long ago. He finds God's law away in a drawer in a dusty old room, and it hasn't been touched for 60 years because the evil king Manasseh did away with God's law, hid it away, and no one touched it for so long. And so Israel has been godless, Judah rather, he's been godless for so long. So he finds this scroll. It's actually a, a part of Deuteronomy called the Law Code, and it tells the Israelites how to live and how to please God. And so the high priest brings it to Josiah, and Josiah opens it and he reads it, and he goes, oh my gosh, we lost the Bible. How have we not had this for so long? And he realizes exactly what it is right away. And he realizes the importance of it. So he says, that's it. This is the day we clean up Israel. So he gets rid of all the idols, all the prostitution, all the um, mingling with the pagans. And he says, Israel is getting back on track today. And so he, he does all these things. But then he brings this, this law code they found. And he starts to read it to the people. And he starts to tell them about it so that they can live it out as well. And so these people start hearing God's word for the first time in 60 years. And they start returning to God. They are obeying him. They are living it out every single day, what it means to follow God. So God begins to bless these people because they turn back to him. Um, He is pouring out his spirit upon them. And for a period of 13 years, Judah is experiencing this incredible revival because they have returned to God and they are reading his word. And they are living it out every single day. So 13-year period where absolute revival has broken out. And this lasts until Josiah dies in 609 B.C. So between finding the scroll and dying, there's a 13-year period of just absolute revival and blessing. And something really, 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 really important happens in these 13 years. And this is where our story comes to a head. What happens in the, in the span of these 13 years is that Daniel and his three friends are born in Judah. And they grow up in this environment. They grow up in this revival where people are living by the words of Deuteronomy 11. They're living by this. God says, commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these words of mine. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Write them on your doorposts of your house and your gates so that as long as the sky remains above the earth, you and your children may flourish And the land the Lord swore to give you and your ancestors. So these people aren't just going to temple once a week and talking about God. It has penetrated every crevice, every part of their life. Every environment they live in, they are serving God. And this is the environment that Daniel and his friends have grown up in. They are literally the fruit of Josiah's revival. Their lives, their obedience to God, even in exile, is the fruit of this intentional discipleship upbringing. Now guys I hear all the time. I hear Christians talk um on podcasts and in passing whatever just about the culture war, right? That Christianity is in a culture war with secularism, right? And we're bait, we're beating against each other and it's a struggle for who's going to win. And guys, I've got some really bad news. By the way, secularism, if you're not familiar with that term, is just this idea that we should reject all religion. And nothing we do should have anything to do with, with biblical morals or anything, and we should just get, get rid of religion and the Bible and all that. So people say these two entities are fighting, Christianity and secularism, but the truth is that secularism has won the culture war, okay? We lost the war a long time ago as, as Christians. If you're waiting for America and the Western world to return to godly, moral uh, fiber, like, and you're waiting for like public schools to go back and start... Um, teaching things about God and truth again, like we all complain about those things and wait for them to happen, but the truth is that it's not gonna happen, and we've gotta stop waiting for that because you're gonna wait until you die. It's It's not on the horizon. I've gotta tell you, that's really sad, but it's true. Secularism is coming. In fact, it's already here, and it's gonna grow, okay? But, and this is a very important but, we can disciple our children with such intentionality, and we can turn back to God With such decidedness that our kids can thrive in this exile of secularism, okay? And that's where they're heading, by the way, if they ever plan to move out of your house, is secularism. They're not going into a world um, of Christianity, but of exile. And we know this is the case because of what Daniel and his friends were able to accomplish. Because of their upbringing, they were able to have supernatural power and courage and discipline in the face of exile, And this is possible for our kids, too. Absolutely, it is possible for our kids. And guys, the need for revival is only going to grow in the future. There's a guy named Dave Kinnaman. He is the president of the Barna Institute, which essentially is a Christian group that tracks Christian trends in American culture. And he just recently wrote a book called Faith in Exile, where he talks about the next generation, Generation Z, right? Generation Z is basically anyone who is too young to remember that 9-11 happened, Okay, anybody who says 9-11, I saw it on the History Channel, you're Gen Z, okay? So Gen Z, the next generation, he estimates that only about 11% of them will become what he calls resilient disciples of Jesus. Basically, people who not only are brought up in the church, but by the time they're they're older and they're making decisions for themselves, they are still in the church and they are still following Jesus resiliently, despite living in exile, right? 11% of Generation Z. Guys, his point is this. I know that's not a happy number. His point is that without resolute and intentional discipleship of our young people, the next Christian generation does not stand a chance at all. And it makes me realize this about myself. It makes me realize that the longer I do my job, I actually understand my job description better because my primary, primary job is not to be a spiritual caretaker of children, right? It's to empower and equip families to disciple their families, their kids. The rest of the week and it's not just to convey knowledge about God to older students that's not simply my job but it's it's actually to show them God's beauty and to encourage them and empower them and enable them to follow them outside of these church walls that's really what my job entails the more I think about it guys if our students are going to have a faith at last they need to know that our faith the older generation's faith is not segmented it is alive it is at the core of who we are we have to display God's goodness in every area of our life. We can't just come to church on Sunday and, and be believers, but then the rest of the week, our life doesn't, even if we don't do anything bad necessarily, like we just drop God the rest of the week, they're going to see right through that, right? Who wants to follow someone with a segmented faith? That's not alive. That's not exciting. That's not real. So you may be saying, hey, that's, that's really good, Jordan. I agree with you. Actually, that's awesome, but I don't have a degree in ministry. I don't know how to disciple my family So how do I do that? I mean, what do I accomplish? Well, it's a lot easier than we think. Sometimes it's a really intimidating thought, and the devil wants us to think it's a really big task, but it's actually, it just starts with small steps. So I want to show us a few small steps today to disciple our families, to intentionally pour into them so that they have a chance to live well in exile after they leave. So just four really quick steps Number one is that it has to be your passion before it's theirs. You have to be a passionate believer in Jesus before it's theirs. Why? Because we make more of whatever we are. If we are people who segment Jesus into Sunday and say, act right six days out of the week, but then, you know, really act right on Sunday, well, that's what we're going to create. Because we create more of whatever we are. We have to be a people that are living this out, and it has to be real in our hearts before we try and institute it in somebody else. Does that make sense? Otherwise, it's not going to stick. They're going to see right through it. Number two is it has to be a change in mindset, right? We have to own this responsibility. It is not someone else's job to train up my kids. It is not the church's or the school's job to train up my kids if they go to Christian school. We have your back and we want to support what you're doing, but it really has to start at home. If it doesn't start at home and you are not the main spiritual guide of your child, and you're not fostering these things at home. Doesn't mean you have to know everything, but if you're not doing these things in your daily life, they have no chance. It's not going to be real for them. Um, There you go, Smokey Bear. Only you can disciple your child. Uh, Number three, we have to, this is a good one, we have to tear down these fences that separate our spiritual lives from our kids. So often, Katie or I will have a quiet time or something, and it's like, you know, Maggie will run in, and it's almost like I close my Bible and deal with her and then when she's gone, I can open it back up, and it's like, no, every part of our spiritual life, every part of our relationship with God has to be open to our kids. We can't segment those things, right? So often they're segmented into different parts of our lives, and that just can't be the way that it is. Katie and I, we bring our kids to venue whenever we can. We want to see them to see what, what we do, not because we're good at it or, or whatever, but just because we want them to know that we want to follow God in everything. We don't just want it to be this 90 minutes on Sunday, um, So do things with your kids throughout the week that show them that it's real for you, right? That it's not just this one part of your life. Um, Oh, so I said sometimes they're segmented, but really our spiritual lives should look like they should blend together really well with the rest of our life, right? It's not Sunday, and then put that aside, day, day, day. It's my relationship with God blends into everything, and I can't really tell where my spiritual life ends and something else begins because it's just so a part of who I am. So this is a much better picture of what it should be. Last one. I really like this one. I'm not, uh, oh, aim for practicality, not spirituality. So make it practical, not overly spiritual, and I'm not allowed to say stupid on stage. So keep it super simple. Kiss. Keep it super simple. It doesn't have to be this really um, like high level teaching or whatever. You don't need seminary. It's simple things. Katie and I um, are going to start getting a chalkboard and every week just writing a really short verse on it. And putting it up in our living room. And whenever we walk through the living room or leave the house or something, maybe once a week we'll say, hey, have you guys heard this verse? And just saying a verse with them. Or at night when they're in bed, integrating God into the conversation, having prayer requests. Um, Whenever someone is sick or hurt, just asking your kids, would you like to pray for them? And they'll probably say no because they're scared. And so then you'll pray. But you just do these simple things to integrate God into every part of our lives. We don't just let it be this one segmented day of the week. There are some things that we want to do here at TBC to assist you guys in this as well. We're going to start something called Fifth Sundays. So every time there is a Fifth Sunday in a month, we are going to cancel um, kids' classes, kindergarten through 12th grade, and we're all going to be in here together worshiping. And it's probably going to be a little bit unruly to start, and it's probably going to be a little bit louder to start. But it's good that we are all together and that our kids see that we don't want to just put you in a room and let you learn about God. We want to do it with you too, right? We are all, to quote High School Musical, in this together, right? I didn't even put that on my notes. It just happened so naturally. That's how I know it was spirit-led. So, Fifth Sundays. We also want to have a resource table for you. So, over in the, ki- in the basement of the East Building is kind of our kids area. We're going to put a resource table up where every month we're going to have different resources for you as parents to be reading about different age groups of kids and how to disciple them. We're going to, from time to time, have different materials for your kids to read as well if you want them to have those. And so we want to equip you as families to do life with God outside of this room. Does that make sense? That's all, that's all we want to do. Let me talk really quickly. I have three minutes um, about something called Hours of Influence, okay? Okay. As a parent of a child, you have roughly 3,000 hours of influence with your children a year. That means those are hours where you are pouring into them, you are not putting them to bed, or they're not sleeping, or they're not at school, or you're not at work. These are hours where you have time with your kids to shape them in some way. could be over the dinner table, could be after work, could be Saturday mornings, but everybody has about 3,000 per year per kid, okay? Take a guess at how many, this is the average churchgoer, How many hours of influence a week the church has with the children of an average churchgoer, do you think? Somebody said 100. Someone said 40. Gosh, Emily, you would get it. It is. It is 40 hours. The church has 40 hours a year roughly for the average churchgoer to influence your kids. Now you tell me, who has a better chance to shape your kids for the kingdom? It's not me. It's no one here at church, right? Right? It has to start at home. You have so much more ability to influence your kids for the kingdom. And plus, you're allowed to spank them, and I'm not. So that's, that's probably part of that, too. One last thing. I have like 90 seconds. One last thing. I have to share this. It's so powerful. At the end, the end of our story, roughly, so Daniel 9, um, 20 through 21, I read this verse and it just struck me. So this is after all this happens. Daniel's older now, and this happens. He says, While I was speaking and praying, Confessing my sin and the sin of my people in Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in a swift flight about the time of evening sacrifice. Now, you look at this, you might think, oh, the main point of this is that Gabriel came and talked to him. This is an angel, this is really big. But the biggest, most important part of this verse is right here that it is the time of evening sacrifice, because here's the deal. Evening sacrifice is something that the Israelites did in the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed for 70 years at this point. Daniel is still making an evening sacrifice in his heart 70 years later in his room. After he has lived in Babylon for so long, after he has been culturally conquered, he is no longer in his homeland where this happens. He in his heart is still sacrificing to God nightly. That is longevity and faith. That is so incredible that he is so faithful to God for so long. And we can now look at that and say, what created that? It was the fact that he was raised in an environment of intentional discipleship. Guys, we can create this kind. We can't create it. God can create it. We can foster this kind of longevity and faith in our children too. We can do it. But it's going to take an environment of intentional discipleship on all part, our part. It's not just gonna happen by going to church and acting right, right? We have to make it real for every single part of our lives. So let me end with this. Let us all realize that we, we hold the next generation in our hands, right? Not just youth pastors, not just teachers, but, but anyone here who claims to be a mentor or has a young person who looks up to you, we are holding the next generation in our hands, Right? And God has blessed us by allowing us to play a significant role in the spiritual formation of the next generation of believers. And that is way too important to waste. So please, I beg of you, if you are a parent, if you are a grandparent, if you are a mentor to someone, if you are simply someone who wants to see the next generation of believers stay faithful to God, realize that the ball is in your court um, and God has shown us the way for these students to follow God, and that we just be faithful with it, okay? Let me, let me pray for us. We're going to end. Father God, we love you. Um, I thank you for your word. It points us to answers. It's not just stories, God. It's, it's deep truth for life, and it shows us what you want for us and for our kids. So God, I pray that we would intentionally disciple our young people, whether we're parents or otherwise, God, we all have a role to play in the next generation, and I pray that we would um, be faithful to that. Lord, we love you so much. We give you this time. We ask you to bless our week. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Sorry, before you get up, before you get up, I should have remembered because Katie and I spent a long time making these, but 3,000 hours of influence is what you have every year with each of your kids. Um, Mathematically, there should be about 3,000 grains of rice in this baggie. And 3,000 hours seems infinite, but it is not. It is very, very finite. So here's what I want. If you are a parent or you are a mentor or you invest in the next generation, there are bags of these at the back door. Take one as a reminder, right? 3,000 hours. That is what we have with our kids every single year. Make those hours count. Don't waste them. So these are for you to take if you like, 3,000 grains of rice. There you go. Thank you, guys.